Four. In what legal anarchy will questions of property soon find themselves? The Era of Confederation, 1850 to 1875. The railway that now runs the full depth of the seigneury will inevitably cause many difficulties. Already, the whites, attracted by the commerce the railway is stimulating, have spread throughout the village and on the road. We will soon see, due to the Indian political fact, in what legal anarchy will questions of property soon find themselves, in a place where everyone is owner and nobody is. Joseph Dutre 1852. These words by Joseph Dutre, a lawyer and the president of the Institut Canadien, are from Les Sauvages du Canada en 1852, a speech he delivered to a gathering of Montreal's francophone liberal professionals. Its subject was Gahnawage, and Dutre was convinced that the opening of the Lake St. Louis and Province Line Railway that year would cause serious problems. Considering the racial tensions already at play, regarding who had land and residency rights discussed in Chapter 3, and the competition between two seemingly incompatible legal systems, the only outcome he could foresee was legal anarchy. Although he admitted to his audience that his frivolous observations were collected over a mere two or three years and stitched together by a 24-hour study, he showed considerable insight. Unlike most of his contemporaries, Dutre traced the cause of the chaos he foresaw not to any defect in Gahnawage governance or law, but to racial tensions, industrial development, and outside political interference. He also recognized that all these issues were ultimately rooted in concerns over land. As he explained, the problems he foresaw will not be caused in any way by Gahnawage's form of government, but solely due to the mixing of heterogeneous races who are all subject to different laws. This was an important insight. Other outside commentators in the following decades, including officials with the Department of Indian Affairs, DIA, operated under the assumption that the fundamental problem in Gahnawage lay in the people who lived there. They saw Gahnawage Hironu as savage and uncooperative, and their laws as retrograde, the product of conservative and irrational minds. This was in line with the contemporary settler belief that Indians were uncivilized, lazy, ignorant, and devious, and that their primitive collective instincts impeded their improvement as individuals. 19th century government records, travel reports, historical writing, and newspaper articles are infused with these racist tropes, and uncritical historians have tended to repeat them. How convenient it was for the global imperialist colonist to disparage indigenous peoples around the world in this way, while taking their land and wealth. Similar rhetoric and logic are still employed against indigenous peoples to this day, from Palestine to Australia to Canada. Colonial governments have long assumed that indigenous people have defective land practices and have used this as a pretense for taking the land and imposing new land management regimes. Like Dutre, 
I argue in this chapter that problems around land management and governance did not arise from internal deficiencies, but from industrial development, population growth, the racial tension inherent in the settler colonial project, and external political interference in many forms. More broadly speaking, the argument of this chapter points toward the way that settler colonies around the world use racist logics to undermine indigenous claims, blame indigenous people for problems directly inflicted by colonial regimes, and to make the taking of indigenous lands appear commonsensical and inevitable. Although Dutre's analysis was far from perfect, this chapter builds on his insights and further discusses the impacts of new legislation and the expanded powers of the Indian Department and industrial development and railway construction in Gahnawage from 1850 to 1875. Unlike DIA officials who traded unceasingly and uncompromisingly in victim-blaming racist tropes, and unlike innumerable tourists and visitors who repeated tired stereotypes, Dutre visited Gahnawage with a fairly open mind. Thus, he was able to listen and to say something insightful and useful to his audience— People like Dutre suggest to me that no one is simply of his or her time, that people can choose to do the right thing, even in dark times, and that gives me hope. Dutre on Gahnawage Governance, Gender, and Property The Institut Canadien was a literary and scientific society whose membership comprised several hundred of Montreal's most prominent francophone liberal professionals. Dutre's 1852 presentation to this society was based on an extensive tour of Gahnawage that he took with Georges de Lorimier, one of its residents already mentioned in the previous chapter. The only Gahnawage Hironu whom Dutre had previously encountered were the women who sold moose and deer hide footwear in the city. His speech conveys his impressions of Gahnawage behavior, dress, and architecture. But thanks to his interaction with Delorimier, he could also discuss Gahnawage politics and culture. Delorimier, considered by many in Gahnawage to be a white man, gave Dutre a rather simplified explanation of his battles with the community concerning his own dubious citizenship, saying that he was disliked because he was unwilling to wear a couverte, the traditional dress for certain occasions. In fact, the problem was rooted in the Delorimier's family's accumulation of land and wealth at the expense of the nation. On many other points, however, Delorimier helped Dutre to see beyond what an outsider could otherwise have observed. As a lawyer himself, Dutre showed interest in Gahnawage governance and law. His observations reveal that Gahnawage governance, as discussed in Chapter 1, showed remarkable continuity. The chiefs still held political sway, but their power was frequently challenged both inside and outside of the community. He reported that there were five clans, but the bear and turtle clans were each split into two, making a total of seven, each of which elected a grand chief for life, and that the colonial government recognized them, confirmed their election, and gave them medals as symbols of their authority. 
Grand chiefs were responsible for governing land issues within the territory, including the management of the common pasture, seigneurial rights, and the seigneurial mill. What Dutre did not know was that governance in Gahnawage, as in many other indigenous communities, was not characterized by rigid hierarchies or high levels of coercion. Yet, despite the fact that leaders had little power to enforce laws, people generally behaved themselves and followed community norms. Historically, Rodinashuni placed great value on individual freedom and strongly resisted those who sought to limit that independence, including their own leaders. But they accepted certain kinds of authority and law. They did not create written legal codes until the 19th century, but in the words of Ganyankehaga scholar William B. Newell, a knowledge of the principles of good morals and ethics was reflected in their everyday lives. Anyone who did something wrong would not be told that he was wrong, but rather he was ignored, ridiculed, or subjected to social ostracism, and in major offenses, he might even be killed. Dutre was particularly impressed by the matrilineality of Redunashuni society and governance. At the death of a chief, his medal remained in the hands of his mother, if she were alive, or his sister, brother, or closest maternal relative. Incredulously, he reported that Gahnawage Hronu, including men, actually believed that children belonged to the mother and that women were morally superior to men. All of this sounded so unusual that Dutre had to have it confirmed by several people he finally recognized it was true. They take it as a maxim that the child belongs to the mother and that the father is only, as Balzac said, l'éditeur responsable. Then, in order to effect a legitimate transmission of the insignia of authority, the medal, from the dead chief to his successor, they wanted the mother and her line to keep it safe until the election of the successor. The father of the chief is considered an outsider for this purpose. There is no hint in his speech that matrilineality was weak or declining, which is probably a good indication that the end of longhouse living had little bearing on the continuity of matrilineal values and practices. If Dutre had thought otherwise, he probably would have seized the chance to mention it. In discussing Gagnon-Gehaga jurisdiction of Sault St. Louis, Dutre emphasized the collectivity of their ownership. According to him, at Sault St. Louis, the Iroquois possess collectively, not individually, in an uncontested way, a seigneury measuring three leagues wide and two leagues deep between Chateaugui and La Prairie. The whites cultivate a part of it as sensitaires, and the rest is standing trees and tall forest, a part cultivated by the Indians, a common pasture, and the village of Kaknawaga. Gahnawage leaders always underscored the collective nature of the territorial sovereignty, and Dutre picked up on this. He also learned that Gahnawage Hrono could gain a kind of individual ownership over pieces of land, but that the rights of individuals were always subject to the right of the collective. Dutre understood the territory in seigneurial terms with French-Canadian censitaires who paid rent to Gahnawage Hronu, who acted as seigneurs. He seemed not to know of the highly contested nature of the ownership and boundaries of the seigneurie 
or of the frequent delegations Gahnawage sent to England on this matter. He discussed Gahnawage laws on land ownership in some detail, comparing Radhanashuni legal norms to the ideals of the communists and socialists of his day. Those who have considered the phalanstery, communism, and socialism as unrealistic dreams would be astonished if they saw an almost analogous system functioning with perfect regularity, and if they knew that this kind of communism has existed here for centuries and is still fully operational. Because the current government of the Iroquois is the traditional government of the American Indians and European civilization has not changed it. Obviously, Dutre was not aware of the great diversity of political systems in Indigenous America or of the European influences on Indigenous governance to that time. However, he was impressed by the fact that here was a very old political institution operating according to principles that European theorists had only recently formulated. Dutre had also learned that Gahnawage had a kind of individual land ownership, rather idyllically. He stated that every Gahnawage Hironu possessed a piece of cultivated land, sugarbush, and timber. Since long ago, each of them has had a piece of land to cultivate, a sugarbush, and a woodlot, and all of this is an inheritance that is transmitted without the intervention of the commune. But since the commune is obliged to concede uncultivated lands to Indians who ask for them, one can see that the mixture of communism and individual property would give rise to great difficulties if the population were to exhaust all of its unconceded lands. Dutre's story on this front was better than the reality, but even so, he was right in pointing out that any eligible Gahnawage Hironu could obtain a modest lot for a house and garden. His reference to the transmission of land from one generation to the next suggests that the practice had become normal by this time, or that he was simply repeating Delorimier's point of view. In another part of his speech, Dutre even seemed to be aware that Gahnawage Hironu could cut trees on unconceded parts of the seigneurie, including on lots claimed by other Gahnawage Hironu. But though he admired the way in which the land system seemed to run itself, he was concerned about how the commune would function when there was no longer any unclaimed land to be had. As Gahnawage grew, more people would be competing for land, a problem that would lie at the heart of future conflicts. Although he was a white man and an outsider who did not know much about Gahnawage, Dutre visited it with an open mind and thus gained important insights that DIA officials were never able to or allowed to have. He could see that worsening tensions and problems over land and race would not be the fault of Gahnawage Hironu themselves, but would spring from the growing asymmetry of the colonial relationship between Canada and Gahnawage. He understood that Gahnawage operated according to its own laws and that the colonial state and capital were increasingly at odds with Gahnawage leaders and law. His ominous premonition was that the situation would end in legal and political chaos. He identified various other threats as well, two of which were industrialization and the railway. Montreal Industrialization and its Effects 
During the 19th century, Montreal was transformed from a fur-trading town of about 9,000 people on the colonial margins to an economic powerhouse with a population of 300,000. In the 1850s, as the city was becoming the most important transfer point, depot, and manufacturing center in British North America, it experienced spectacular population growth, with rates averaging 5% each year. This rapid urban development was made possible by significant increases in public spending on transportation infrastructure such as canals and railroads, as well as political and judicial reforms that favored industrial growth. Economic expansion went hand-in-hand with the geographical expansion of the city and the steady rise in land prices throughout the region. Although Gahnawage lay several miles from the city core and was separated from it by a large river, it was significantly affected by all this change. Like most developments associated with industrial and urban expansion, the impacts were not all negative. For a time, there were opportunities for entrepreneurship, new jobs, and easier river crossings. But the higher regional population densities and industrial infrastructure also brought new anxieties, problems, and hazards. Probably the greatest mid-century impact of Montreal industrialization on Gahnawage was the construction of the Lake St. Louis and Province Line, LSL and PL, Railroad, in 1852. Running 35 miles from Moores Junction, New York, to Gahnawage, it facilitated the transport of goods and passengers from Lake Champlain to the St. Lawrence River. And the Gahnawage Terminus, the aptly named ferry, Iroquois, carried railway cars across the river to Lachine, which were then pulled to Montreal along an eight-mile rail line that paralleled the Lachine Canal. Figure 4.1 shows an 1868 military map which part of the village of Gahnawage, the rail line, and the infrastructure for the rail terminus and wharf. The LSL and PL was financed by Montreal businessmen who believed the economic well-being of their city was threatened by recently completed lines in New York State, such as the Northern Railroad that ran from Ogdensburg to Rouse's Point, connecting the upper St. Lawrence River to Lake Champlain, and thus cut Montreal out of the trade between New England and the Great Lakes. By the time the first LSL and PL train ran from Montreal to Plattsburgh, However, several companies were already competing for essentially the same route, each hoping to capture the traffic between Montreal and the eastern seaboard. The advantage of the LSL and PL over its downstream and down rapids competitors was that goods arriving at Lachine could be shipped south of the border without paying Lachine Canal tolls, but its disadvantage was that Plattsburgh did not yet have rail connections to the south. This meant that railway cars had to be transported by steamer across Lake Champlain to the nearest railway terminus. After several unprofitable years, a merger and a bankruptcy, the Grand Trunk Railway absorbed the LSL and PL in 1863 and thus gained control of the line serving Gahnawage. In 1859, the completion of the Victoria Bridge linked the island of Montreal to the South Shore, which diminished the competitiveness of the bridgeless LSL and PL. It was abandoned in the early 1880s and turned into a public road. 
The wharf was still used as a ferry terminus and for loading quarried stone onto barges, and the abandoned Grand Trunk warehouses and workshops were taken over and used by Gahnawa Gehronu for a variety of purposes, including residences. Figure 4.3 is a painting of the busy Gahnawage riverfront in spring 1860 from the point of view of the wharf. This first railway was short-lived, but since Gahnawage was a terminus and transfer point, it experienced significant impacts, including the construction of piers, docks, and other structures to accommodate freight and passengers. Aside from changing the character of the village, the railroad also caused damage to land and landowners all along its path. Gahnawage farmers were so infuriated by the way in which the company treated them that they refused to have further dealings with it after construction was completed. The last straw was the company's demand for 13 acres to house its terminal at the village waterfront, which some interpreted as a plot to gain possession of the village itself. Tension and threats of violence ensued. Gahnawage chiefs quite reasonably believed that compensation for the expropriated lands should stay in the community. But the government kept the money, brandishing the convenient racist argument that Indians were not capable of managing money. This may have been the first time that the DIA held Gahnawage money in trust for the chiefs, but I was unable to find more archival information on this event. By the time the band council system was imposed in 1889, all public Gahnawage money was held in trust by the department. The physical, cultural, and economic changes wrought by the railway, along with the sense that Gahnawage leaders could no longer effectively lead, prompted much concern about the future of the community. The advent of quarrying also had a major impact on Gahnawage. The Trenton limestone found closer to Montreal was not hard enough for cutting large construction stones, whereas the grey, medium to coarse-grained Shazy limestone in Gahnawage was ideal for this purpose. As early as 1822, an area behind the village was being quarried for the construction of the Lachine Canal. The quarry workers were mostly settler labourers who were housed in and near the village. Gahnawage stone was used in many transportation structures, including the Cornwall Canal and the piers of the Victoria Bridge. For the latter project, Gahnawage boatmen were hired to transport stone to the building site. The quarries were in operation until the mid-20th century, and most are now filled with water. Although they did provide jobs and some benefits for Gahnawage Hronu, they were also sites of dispute over air and noise pollution. In the late 19th century, they became another battleground when the DIA attempted to extract royalties on quarried stone and favored settler-owned companies over Gahnawage operators. A development that could have further disrupted the lives of Gahnawage Hronu was the construction of a shipping canal to connect the St. Lawrence with the Richelieu River. This project was seriously discussed from the 1840s until the 1870s, but never came to fruition. Its most ardent proponent was John Young, a steamship entrepreneur, longtime president of the Montreal Harbor Commission and lifelong proponent of harbor and waterway modernization. 
Several studies were commissioned mid-century, most recommending that the canal be constructed from Gahnawage to the Chambly Canal, which led south to Lake Champlain. Because Gahnawage is located above the Lachine Rapids, it is only 29 feet below Lake Champlain, whereas Montreal is 73.5 feet below. Situating the canal's terminus in Gahnawage would have meant fewer locks, and thus lower construction and operational costs. The canal was to have been about 32.5 miles long, and the cost of construction was estimated at $1,814,408 in 1848, and at $4,267,890 in 1855. Promoters claimed in 1870 that the canal would reduce the cost of shipping Ottawa wood to the United States by $1 per thousand board feet. In 1855, construction seemed set to begin, and Gahnawage chiefs asked for protection against surveyors of the canal who were causing damage to their crops, as well as compensation for removed trees and fences. Although engineers declared the plan to be perfectly feasible, and although Young kept bringing it to the attention of the Prime Minister as late as 1871, it was never carried out. A century would pass before life in Gahnawage was turned upside down by the construction of a canal whose size was much greater than anyone in the 19th century could have imagined, the St. Lawrence Seaway. The growth of Montreal also affected Gahnawage in other ways. Land prices skyrocketed, wood became more expensive and had to be brought in from farther away. Wood shortages began to be felt in Gahnawage as outsiders cut and took wood to which they had no right. Some Gahnawage Hronu also began to sell it for profit, thereby breaking Gahnawage law and depriving other Gahnawage Hronu of wood. A detail from an 1865 map of the area shows the proximity of Gahnawage to nearby towns and extensive Indian lands, which were more heavily wooded than neighboring areas. The regional shortage meant that Gahnawage wood, which had been relatively abundant, became increasingly vulnerable to unauthorized depredations. I return to this problem in Chapter 5. The Department of Indian Affairs and Indian Policy to 1875 Gahnawage's difficulties were worsened by an increasingly strident and ambitious Indian department with an intensified, civilizing agenda. During the 1830s and 1840s, the newly constituted department concentrated on First Nations in Upper Canada because many Lower Canada communities already lived in permanent villages, which officials saw as essential in the civilizing process. Permanent indigenous villages experienced particular kinds of dispossession associated with white squatters and white men who gained access to indigenous lands by marrying indigenous women. More mobile indigenous people at this time were subject to the kind of dispossession associated with large-scale logging, settler hunting and fishing, and direct violence inflicted by frontier settlers. Thus, the Indian Department established its first Indian reserves in Upper Canada as places that would supposedly keep Indigenous people safe from the vices of white colonial society while also preparing them to be assimilated into that society. 
Due to budget constraints, however, the department did little more than administer the distribution of annual presents and relied on missionaries to run missions and schools. The Lower Canadian government already considered Indigenous nations in the St. Lawrence Valley as mission villages and would soon begin to refer to them as reserves. Although Indigenous people in Lower Canada had protested against white settlement and hunting competition in their hunting grounds since the late 18th century, the issue came to a head during the 1840s. An 1844 report commissioned by Governor Charles Bagot suggested that Indigenous peoples throughout the St. Lawrence watershed were in crisis, wild animals were scarce, farmers and loggers were invading hunting territories, and the closer proximity of settlers had produced widespread poverty and desperation. The colonial government was bombarded by petitions and demands from many Indigenous nations, asking for protection and compensation. In response to this crisis, both Upper and Lower Canada made the protection of Indian lands a priority. However, the lands were not the vast area guaranteed by the Royal Proclamation of 1763, or claimed by Indigenous peoples themselves, but only a few small spaces that would interfere as little as possible with white settlement. The colonial government set them aside, not because it particularly cared about Indigenous nations, but because it was eager to avoid the expense of feeding starving people or dealing with an Indigenous military insurgency. The Indian Department had worked with missionaries since the 1830s in Upper Canada to establish and operate Indian reserves, but such language was not normally used in Lower Canada until 1850. The 1850 Act for the Better Protection of the Lands and Property of the Indians in Lower Canada aimed to stop the encroachment on Indigenous land, but it also empowered the Crown to manage that land, thus undermining the authority of Indigenous leaders. The Commissioner of Indian Lands named in the Act was accountable to the colonial government, not to the chiefs. Indigenous seigneuries, such as Gahnawage, were also vested in the commissioner, who began to call them reserves, whereas hitherto they had usually been referred to as Indian villages or seigneuries. The 1851 Act to authorize the setting apart of lands for the use of certain Indian tribes in Lower Canada established 230,000 acres as reserves, including Indigenous seigneuries, reserves for hitherto mobile communities, and hunting reserves for non-mobile communities, among them Gahnawage. The 1850 Act was the first piece of Canadian legislation to legally define an Indian. Not only did it help to establish the idea of an Indian as a legal category, it also granted the Crown legal jurisdiction over who would be considered as such. In addition, it specified that if an Indian person married a non-Indian person, the latter would become an Indian. Indigenous leaders immediately perceived that this law would enable white men to gain control of Indian land through marriage, as they already had a history of doing. After a sustained outcry from Gahnawage and other communities, Lower Canada changed the law so that non-Indigenous men could not gain access to Indigenous resources and land through marriage. Henceforth, a non-Indian man who married an Indian woman would not gain rights in her community. Instead, she would lose her rights. A non-Indian woman who married an Indian man would assume his status. Considering the relatively powerful political position of women in Gahnawage, 
and other Rodernashuni communities, it may seem puzzling that leaders would countenance a situation in which many women would be deprived of their Indian status, land, and ties to their community. Why would a matrilineal nation demand a provision that removed women who married non-Indian men? And why would it want to grant full status to non-Indian women who married Indian men? The answers to these difficult questions can surely be found in the fact that indigenous communities had very few options in the context of settler colonial assaults. More specifically, their approval of these patriarchal provisions must be seen in light of the real threats posed by white men who gained access to lands and rights by marrying indigenous women, and the decades-long struggles of indigenous communities to prevent this. It is also likely that at least some indigenous leaders had internalized colonial patriarchal values. Kanyakehaga anthropologist Audra Simpson suggests that in this situation, white men as status Indians were far more threatening than white women because they could be landowners, band counselors, and voters. Although the presence of white women as de jure Indians may have been profoundly aggravating to Indian women who had to leave upon outmarriage, it probably was not threatening to the stability of the broader community in terms of property or land ownership. Thus, the extinguishment of Ganyankehaga women's rights, according to Simpson, may have been less of an attempt at discriminating against their own people than at protecting the community from a possible takeover by non-Indian men. Patrilineal land ownership and inheritance norms were also adopted by other indigenous communities during the 19th century. An important corollary is Six Nations of the Grand River, which incorporated patrilineal legal norms as a way to protect what little remained of its land base in the 1840s. Five years after the 1850 and 1851 Acts came into effect, the chiefs of the Seven Nations, the Confederacy of First Nations along the St. Lawrence River, met to discuss their experiences with the Acts and to draft recommendations for the colonial government. They understood that the laws had ostensibly been drafted to protect their lands from acquisitive settlers, but they detailed the unanticipated effects. Those who were not entitled to Indian right before became entitled to Indian rights by the passage of the Act of A.D. 1850, which has done us a great deal of harm. Such whites residing amongst us paid rent even for cattle's pasturage before the Act of A.D. 1850. But after the passage of said act, no rent is paid either for cattle's pasturage. We then became, as it were, slaves, although we are principal men of our tribes. It, the act, does us a great deal of harm and trouble. Although the aim of the legislation had been to stop indigenous land loss, it had undermined the authority of the chiefs and emboldened settlers to stop paying rent for pasturing cattle on their territories. Chiefs also reported that some settlers had gained Indian status because of the laws, against the wishes of the community. The chiefs of the Seven Nations went on to suggest that all Indian legislation related to land be based on the laws in effect in Gahnawage. They outlined six key points that should be part of Canada-wide Indian legislation. 1. An Indian should not have the right to sell land, house, or wood to a white man, and that a punishment should be made for both the seller and buyer. 2. 
that an Indian should not have the right to let land, house, or give farm to a white man to sow in half. 3. An Indian, if lawfully married to a white woman, his wife becometh an Indian, and her children reputed to belong to the particular tribe or body of Indian. But if male of the children as above mentioned should marry to a white woman, the children issue of such marriages lose all rights of Indians. 4. An Indian woman who is lawfully married to a white man loses all her Indian rights. 5. That the chiefs of each tribe should be incorporated with full powers to superintend the affairs of their respective villages and to make a law for the same subject to the approval of the governor-general. 6. That, at the expiration of five years, there should be a general election of grand chiefs for each tribe, and that the names of the chiefs so elected should be submitted for the approval of His Excellency, the Governor-General. Some aspects of this list would remain a feature of Indian law for many decades. For example, selling or leasing reserve land to non-Indians is still forbidden, and a woman's Indian status depended on that of her husband until the passage of Bill C-31 in 1985. In their fifth point, the leaders requested that the chiefs of each village be given the legal authority to govern and to make laws for their communities, which also suggests the elimination of Indian agents. In the final point, they asked for a standardized practice of chiefly elections, which would be certified by the Governor-General. This request should not be seen as proof that they intended to submit to the authority of colonial governments. Instead, they seem to be asking for the right to govern themselves in much the same way as the governments of British colonies aspired to govern themselves. That same year, the Governor-General, Edmund Walker Head, received a petition from 15 Gahnawage Hironu who represented another point of view. They portrayed themselves as the enlightened minority in the community, with an interest in agriculture, and said that they had followed the recommendations, opinions, and advice of the government to build houses and cultivate land outside the village. They claimed that during the previous winter, Gahnawage chiefs and a large number of other Gahnawage Hronu had destroyed, looted, and burned down their homes. Furthermore, they themselves had cut and sold wood for which the chiefs were now pressing charges in court. They admitted to doing this but claimed that the buyers had purchased only standing trees and had cut them down themselves. This is the only instance I have found in the archival record when anyone tried to interpret Gahnawage law in this way. That cut wood may not be sold, but that standing trees may be sold as long as the purchaser fells them. This interpretation clearly violates the spirit of the 1801 Code, since its point had been to prohibit the commodification of wood and to preserve the forests for Gahnawage Hrono to use. It is also worth noting that by mid-century, the chiefs believed they needed the courts to enforce their laws on their own territory. The petitioners could have asked simply for protection and compensation for their losses, but they went much further. They pointed to the high population numbers in Gahnawage and proposed a solution that since their tribe now numbers 1,300, 
And in order to avoid any future difficulties between its members regarding the occupation of the common lands and to come to the assistance of those members who want to cultivate land, your petitioners believe it would be greatly advantageous to have the lands divided. Their idea was that a subdivision survey would define the boundaries of lots within the reserve. They believed that individual private property with defined borders would produce a more harmonious agricultural community. When asked about this petition, Indian agent Edouard Narcisse de Lorimier claimed that several names had been forged and that the chiefs had never stopped any of the signatories from settling on particular lands. As he explained, the chiefs were merely trying to prevent the petitioners from selling wood to settlers because it belonged to the entire community. If the petitioners had simply been cutting wood and cultivating land, no one would have bothered them. Instead, they had logged several thousand cords of timber and had been selling pines and oaks valued at $15 to $20 for 30 to 40 cents. He stated that the chiefs had been doing everything in their power to prevent these men from selling wood, including sending messengers to ask them to stop. Gontogwa, one of the petitioners, apparently attacked and nearly killed a messenger with a hatchet. When the chiefs realized that they had no other options, the people rose up en masse against the wood sellers, 15 or 20, who take the wood belonging to 13 or 1400. According to Delorimier, it had always been understood that selling wood to settlers was illegal under any pretext. In defense of those who had attacked the dwellings of the petitioners, he said the buildings were merely log shacks without chimneys or floors. Finally, he utterly rejected the idea of a subdivision survey, saying that the petitioners simply wanted the reserve to be sold at a very low price, an outcome that would be a great misfortune for this tribe. This was one of several times in the 19th century when Gahnawage leaders rejected the idea of subdividing their territory. Clearly, supported by many of their people, and the Indian agent, in this case, the leaders were enforcing their laws against a few dissidents, but they required the aid of the courts to do so. New Indian legislation would further facilitate the advance of colonial law. The 1857 Act to encourage the gradual civilization of the Indian tribes, known as the Gradual Civilization Act, was supposed to create legal conditions that would break down the barriers between Indian and non-Indian. It established the conditions under which an Indian man could become enfranchised, a non-Indian. An Indian could apply to become enfranchised if he were male, at least 21 years old, literate in French or English, of good moral character, and free of debt. In exchange for enfranchisement, he gave up all his Indian rights and was entitled to a new name, as well as a 50-acre parcel taken from the territory of his former community. In this last provision, one can see the intention to break up Indian reserves into individually owned lots and thus extinguish nations. The requirements for enfranchisement were so high, literacy, freedom from debt, and good moral character, that few white people at the time could have satisfied them. The civilized Indian, concludes historian John Tobias, would have to be more civilized than the Euro-Canadian. Even in the eyes of colonial governments, the law proved a dismal failure since few indigenous people could meet the requirements even if they wanted to be enfranchised. 
Subsequent legislation would give colonial governments more power to enfranchise Indians involuntarily with the long-term goal of eliminating indigenous nations. Practically speaking, enfranchisement legislation undermined indigenous sovereignty because the colonial government empowered itself to define Indianness, and it did so on the basis of racial and financial logics. The 1867 British North America Act gave the newly formed Canadian federal government exclusive jurisdiction over Indians and Indian lands, without the consent of Indigenous people. The next year, Parliament passed an act that summarized and standardized Indian legislation from all four of the founding colonies, an act providing for the organization of the Department of the Secretary of the State of Canada and for the management of Indian and Ordnance lands. In the words of Duncan Campbell Scott, who would later head the DIA, this act brought together all the best features of previous legislation. With the passage of the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869, it was clear that the central goal of Indian policy was now assimilation and that the short-term objective was the transformation of indigenous political institutions. Aimed squarely at Rudinashuni and other Eastern First Nations with a long history of European contact, it enabled the governor and council to impose elected band councils on indigenous communities to replace existing indigenous governments. The band councils could pass bylaws on relatively minor municipal matters, but only with the approval of the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. The DIA was in regular contact with Indigenous communities of the St. Lawrence Valley and the Southern Great Lakes region regarding the provisions of these early Indian laws. There was considerable debate within Indigenous communities about each of them, and the DIA did make some attempt to respond to their concerns. The problem was that Canada imposed a rigid, global legal framework that did not recognize the multiplicity of Indigenous legal frameworks and jurisdictions. Although historian Theodore Binema argues that the Indian Department acted in good faith when it consulted with Indigenous peoples regarding the definition of Indian, his research also reveals the absurdity of a colonial government attempting to define a rather new term, Indian, according to ancient customs. In addition, any departmental responsiveness and accountability had evaporated by the end of the 19th century. Already, in the 1860s and 1870s, the DIA regularly exploited political fissures within Indigenous communities to impose the Band Council system of the 1869 Act, as it did in Tayandanega in 1870. Although a general council of the Rudinashuni, including two Gahnawage chiefs, unanimously rejected the Gradual Enfranchisement Act in 1870, the DIA was no longer consulting with Indigenous communities in good faith. It is evident that the trend in Indigenous-Canada relations was intensifying political, cultural, and economic interference in Indigenous affairs. Indigenous people understood that the Canadian government was increasingly indifferent to their demands and hostile to their existence. The fact that the Indian Department in the 1850s consulted extensively with Indigenous communities before 
and after drafting Indian laws did not mean that colonial governments were kind and generous toward indigenous people. But it did mean that the DIA was still following precedents that were set when settler-indigenous relations were more in equilibrium. By the 1870s, the DIA cared little about the opinions of indigenous people except insofar as they might impede its ability to impose its will. Kahnawage Hiraonu felt this change, along with other changes mentioned earlier in this chapter, and contemplated their options. One option was to move the community elsewhere. Attempts to Relocate Through the centuries, many Gahnawage Hirono decided to leave Gahnawage and not return. But during the latter half of the 19th century, Gahnawage Hirono made some extraordinary attempts to move the community in its entirety to a place where its way of life would be less threatened. In some ways, this was a traditional response to collective hardship, since their ancestors had regularly relocated their villages to more favorable sites for any number of reasons. By the mid-19th century, there were few good options for this kind of collective mobility, yet many in Gahnawage could no longer see a future for themselves and their children in their current location. A number of Gahnawage Hirono were so disturbed by the expropriations and permanent changes wrought by the Lake St. Louis and Province Line in 1852 that they decided to leave. They asked the Saugeen First Nation on Georgian Bay for permission to settle in its territory. The colonial government had been toying with the possibility of moving indigenous communities westward, as the United States had been doing, so it was open to the idea. The Saugeen Ojibwe and the Indian Department agreed to the plan, and some 20 Gahnawage families moved to the Bruce Peninsula. But the scheme was short-lived. All but three of the families returned to Gahnawage in 1857. Of those who remained, some intermarried with local families and were adopted by their communities. Thus, the effort to transfer the nation to the Bruce Peninsula failed, but the idea to move Gahnawage continued to gain traction. In the 1850s, Gahnawage leaders made the first of several attempts to sell their lands and move the entire village. The reasons for this was economic, such as the impact of the railway, land loss, and illegal woodcutting, but they were also political and cultural. Gahnawage Hirono could see that maintaining their way of life would be difficult in the face of economic and environmental upheaval, as well as increasing political and cultural interference by the DIA. The first Gahnawage petitions to sell the seigneury in its entirety date from the early 1860s, and efforts persisted until the mid-1870s. Chiefs asked the Indian Department to enforce Gahnawage laws against commercial logging as early as 1859, and when the response was inadequate, they asked for their lands to be sold on terms that would be acceptable to them. George Etienne Cartier, co-premier of the United Canadas, was a major proponent of the sale. A Gahnawage referendum in 1863 approved the sale of the reserve by majority vote, but for unknown reasons the Indian Department did not approve the sale. In March 1870, three Gahnawage chiefs wrote to the DIA protesting its refusal to facilitate the sale of the territory and removal of the community. 
According to their letter, Indian Affairs Superintendent Hector Louis Langevin had refused to sanction the purchase of their land and to allow the community to move. The chiefs planned to travel to present-day Oklahoma later that year to negotiate with Cherokee leaders for a land purchase there. Apparently, the majority in Gahnawagis supported the sale, but some key wealthy and influential individuals opposed it and were able to stop it from going through. In June 1875, four Gahnawagi chiefs again asked the DIA for approval to sell the reserve. In March 1862, the Honorable George E. Cartier, as his predecessor in 1859, was of the opinion that the best means of putting an end to these complaints of the said tribe would be a public sale of the reserve of Sault St. Louis. The said Mr. Cartier suggested at the same time a new division of the reserve between the members of the tribe, or the session, by the said tribe of the reserve to the government in order to emigrate into another place of Canada or to the United States. But, as the members of the tribe were not unanimous on the best mode to adopt, it was understood that those of the Indians who would be willing to remain at Sault St. Louis might buy there some lots or farms, the government being bound to give them credit for their share out of the product of the sale of the reserve, and as to those who would prefer to emigrate to a foreign country, they were to receive in cash a proportionate amount out of the price of said sale. The subdivision proposed by Cartier and his predecessor, possibly Sir Antoine-Aimé Dorian, who preceded Cartier as joint premier of the United Canadas, would have continued the cadastre abrégé of 1860 onto unceded Gahnawage lands, so that the entire seigneurie would have been divided into lots and sold. The nation would be compensated for the value of the land, and this money would enable it to move elsewhere. Since the entire community would not agree to such a move, however, the four chiefs suggested that those who wished to stay should be permitted to buy one of the new lots with their part of the collective indemnity. Those who wished to leave both the community and the territory would receive a cash payment. The chiefs stated that they had been complaining for 20 years about illegal wood sales, which were causing great damage to the community. They claimed that the great majority of the members of the said tribe, viz. over 800, are ready and desirous to surrender their lands to the government of the Dominion of Canada for the price of $25 currency an acre. A letter from four chiefs the month before stated that they did not have the unanimous support of the tribe, but did have majority agreement. They also noted that if the sale were to go through, we shall pass the boundary line in the Dominion of Canada as we are going to be settled of Indian Territory or Cherokee Nation. If you would be answered to us in satisfactory, then we shall commence of preparation. More on this letter in Chapter 5. In response to the June 1875 petition, Lawrence Van Kugne, DIA Deputy Superintendent General, wrote a memo explaining that the petition came from only four of the seven chiefs and claimed to represent the opinion of only 800 of Gahnawage's 1,557 residents, not the strong majority he was looking for. 
This was completely disingenuous, since all seven chiefs had signed letters with similar opinions during the previous two months. Demanding the explicit approval of all women and children, presumably most of the missing votes, was also inconsistent with department practice. Van Kugnet calculated that at $25 per acre, the government would pay $393,575 to purchase the 15,743 acres of unconceded land. He noted, however, that the land along the riverfront was worth $100 per acre and the rest $40 per acre, and that the reserve possessed some very valuable quarries. These were estimated to yield about 2,420,000 toisi, 9,912,854 square meters of cut stone, which he valued at $32 per toisi or $77,440,000. This estimate did not include stone of lesser quality, which would sell for $8 per toisi. Van Kugnet also stated that, The reserve is very favorably situated being opposite Lachine, with which there is constant communication by steamer during the regular season of navigation, and twice a day during the winter, as the ice never takes at this point. Kaknawaga is the terminus of the Kaknawaga and Plattsburgh RR, and all the traffic by that line from Montreal passes through this place for transportation by steamer to Lachine. Clearly, the offer to sell the reserve for $25 an acre was attractive to the DIA, and the outcome of the sale would have been in line with its goal of eliminating Indigenous communities. Most Kahnawage Hronu would leave Canada, and those who stayed would be enfranchised. Furthermore, this prime land near Canada's largest city would be parceled out and sold and would produce long-term revenue. Van Kugnet's memo did not give the reasons for not proceeding with the sale, but perhaps the United States government had declined to take in another Indigenous nation when it was in the midst of an aggressive campaign of dispossession against those already within its borders. Perhaps the $393,575 price tag was also prohibitive, even if it were a bargain. Although this money would have been recovered from land sales, the Indian Department might have been unable or unwilling to access large sums for such purposes. In September 1875, Agent Joseph Pinsonneau followed up with his superior on the chief's petition reiterating the wishes of those who desire to go to the United States to get land they propose to buy if it suit them. No response is included in the file, and the sale did not go through. Conclusion The year 1875 was the last time Gahnawage leaders tried to move the community to another location. From that time forward, Gahnawage Hronu sought to find ways to continue to live on their lands while negotiating the efforts of the DIA to impose increasingly invasive Indian laws and dismantle the reserve. DIA actions to half-heartedly impose colonial notions of private property would create a short period of lawlessness in the 1870s that led to the cutting of much of the Gahnawage Forest, Chapter 5. Using this chaos as justification, the DIA decided to survey and subdivide against the wishes of the community, Chapter 6. The goal of the department was to transform the territory into a private property grid and Gahnawage Hironu into enfranchised farmer proprietors. 
In this light, the attempts of Gahnawa Gehrono to collectively move elsewhere can be seen as forward-thinking and astute, since they foresaw trouble and tried to move to a place where they could live according to their own laws. After 1875, they put this strategy on the back burner and focused on other ways to defend and build their nationhood. During the middle decades of the 19th century, the Montreal region was dramatically transformed through rapid population growth and the rise of an industrial economy. Over the same period, Indigenous nations saw their political influence decline and their territory subjected to increasing depredation and incursion. Kahnawa Gehrono continued to use their lands much as their ancestors had done, but also in new ways, showing adaptation to changing demographic, economic, and political realities. Whereas outsiders claimed that Gahnawage was an anarchic, underutilized space, and scholars have emphasized the economic activities of Gahnawage men away from the village, this chapter shows that these outsiders tended to underestimate or overlook farming, gardening, foraging, and woodcutting activities. Although a few men took up farming using Euro-Canadian approaches, women still produced much of the food for their families, and although some Gahnawageronu owned and enclosed land according to the legal customs of their settler neighbors, most continued to live according to Gahnawage law. The two legal regimes coexisted uneasily in the first half of the century, but a more aggressive DIA in the second half worked to undermine Indigenous law and to impose colonial law. Gahnawage lost an important source of revenue with the demise of the seigneurial system, Chapter 1, and the Indian Department took control of community finances, making it nearly impossible for leaders to lead. Colonial patriarchal norms undermined the position of women as leaders, and Gahnawage chiefs in the 1850s promoted the legal marginalization of women. Archival sources do not indicate the level of support among men and women in Gahnawage for this measure, but many believed it was the best way to protect the nation's land base against white men who could otherwise gain access to land through marriage. They believed this would help the nation to survive in the context of a colonial legal system that restricted women's property rights to such an extent that women-owned properties in Gahnawage were considered extremely vulnerable. By the 1870s, the largely self-governing seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis had been transformed through the circuitous routes of dubious legality into a reserve. Federal legislation had stripped local leaders of some of their powers, and more such laws were on the horizon. All of these changes were related to the emergence of the view of Indigenous people as wards of the state, a paternalist legal relationship that went hand-in-hand with the judicial declaration that traditional councils of chiefs did not possess legal personality. When Indigenous people were declared wards of the Crown, they became subject to a legal disability, like that of minors or married women, and their leaders faced numerous legal barriers as they attempted to govern and lead. The DIA continually tried to insert itself into the power vacuum of its own making, but never managed to claim the entire balance of power. 
But the land conflicts described in this chapter were only the beginning. Chapter 5 relates the hesitant and reactive way the DIA attempted to step into this power vacuum and details the human and environmental costs of this awkward transition. As Joseph Dutre pointed out, the problems that would plague Gahnawage were not grounded in its form of government, but will be solely due to the mixing of heterogeneous races who are all subject to different laws. Dutre knew that the conflict was legal and political in nature, and that trouble lay ahead as one legal system stepped up its assault on the other. Gahnawage Hirono had also seen it coming and had attempted to move the community. After 1875, they made no further efforts to relocate, focusing instead on other ways of defending and building their nationhood while negotiating DIA efforts to impose increasingly invasive Indian laws and to dismantle their reserve. 